Hebrews chapter 9. We'll start at verse 23. And we'll go to verse 28. Hebrews verse 9. Yeah, excellent. Uh, before we read, let's uh, go to God in prayer for illumination. Heavenly Father, Son, and Spirit, please open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our minds to understand. Let us know that when your word speaks, it is you that speaks. Give us the urgency to hear your word and to heed it. Although we do so imperfectly, Help us to understand you so that we can worship you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him, eagerly waiting for him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. Thanks be to God indeed. So if you go to the back of your worship guide, there is a brief outline. But you'll notice there are mostly questions on the outline. And you'll also notice that there are neither three nor five points. I know that's strange. Um, but if you'll bear with me, we'll uh, look at this text together. The title of this exhortation is Watching and Waiting. And the reason I chose that title, not, not only because of what we read about Abram, where he waited on God to do a lot of things, to to initiate the covenant, um, to fulfill the promise. Uh, not only because of what we read in Hebrews, where we are eagerly waiting for Christ to return, um, but also because of where we find ourselves in our lives um, as contemporary believers. I think that... Um, Sometimes because of how long it seems like it takes God to fulfill the promise, 
we find ourselves wondering, what do we do next? And um, I believe that the church right now should be watching and waiting, in addition to some other things. While God's covenant people watch and wait for the Son's return, we find ourselves working to further His kingdom and to glorify God. So, um, we're pretty close to the new year. Does anyone, does anyone small know what time the new year arrives? Oh, I see a hand. Midnight. I think everyone would agree with you. Um, so part of the theme of watching and waiting is um, how we transition from this year into the next. It's a good time for us to reflect back and a good time to look forward. I think we all know about New Year's resolutions, but in case you don't, um, many people make resolutions this time of year. Um, many people also fail to keep their resolutions. I think, I think we all know that. Sorry, just one moment. So I looked up a resource earlier that you've probably heard of um, by a little-known author, Jonathan Edwards. He himself had, uh, you might call them resolutions, he used the word resolved, and he declared he was resolved on a number of, uh, actually a lengthy, a lengthy piece, he had a number of actions to which he was resolved to do. And he wrote it, uh, I think, relatively young in his life. Um, so when you read through it, you know, you might think of someone who sort of made a few mistakes, and, and I'm sure he did at that point, but um, the amount of maturity and reflection in his own life at a young age is impressive. Um, I usually don't endorse uh, resolutions, especially New Year's resolutions, because sometimes when we embark on these resolutions, it's uh, poorly calculated or it's something that we, we might not actually realistically be able to, to put into place in our lives. But some of Jonathan Edwards' resolved statements are worth examining. Uh, number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Pretty simple. 62, resolved never to do anything but duty. And then according to Ephesians chapter 6, do it willingly and cheerfully as unto the Lord and not to man. And then he quotes scripture here, knowing that whatever good thing any man doth, the same shall he receive of the Lord. Uh, these are pretty heavy, some of them. Um, the one about duty in particular, I thought was, you know, a little bit, a little bit heavy-handed. Uh, what, what about uh, joy or, uh, you know, leisure? Here's another one: resolved always to do that which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it. So he's resolved to learn from the example of others. 
And maybe a final one. This one's always stuck with me. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. One more. Just indulge me. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Those are just a few of them. I think one of the dangers in resolutions is a misreading of even Jonathan Edwards' resolutions could lead to some sense of works righteousness. Um, but they can also keep us on track. You know, having, having something to which we aspire. Um, so speaking of works righteousness, for this exhortation, I'd like to connect it to two others that I offered. And you could almost see this as part three of three. Those are The main points of those are included in your uh, bulletin, in that outline. So the main point of the first one was that the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith, ensures the effectiveness of the covenant, God's covenant in the lives of believers. We actually used the same passage from Genesis for that. And the point of uh, the second exhortation was the duty of all believers is to simply believe. And God builds his kingdom through the work of faith. So in, in both of those exhortations, there was this tension between righteousness given to us through the work of Christ and righteousness that we might think we can earn by our own works. So as much as I'm encouraged by some resolutions, I think we always have to be careful about believing that fulfilling our resolutions somehow makes us fit for God's kingdom uh, or earns us our place or earns us God's love. It is, it is indeed always through Christ's finished work and Christ's righteousness that we are acceptable to God. But that brings us out, that brings us back to the main point of this exhortation. While God's covenant people watch and wait for the Son's return, we find ourselves working to further his kingdom and glorify God. So Advent is, uh, you know, I guess it, in one sense it's, it's, it's come. It's not gone yet. The 12 days of Christmas are still here. So if you still haven't gotten me a gift, you have a few more days. I'll keep you in mind as well. Um, but I think this time of year and into January, we tend to ask ourselves, there's sort of this letdown. This, it, everything builds up. You know, we're lighting the candles. We're decorating the church and our homes, singing special songs, eating special food. But now that we've seen the Advent, what's next? And that goes back to the title of the exhortation, Watching and Waiting. So what is next? Um... Well, in one sense, Christ's return is next. Um, and that's mostly what this message will be about. After Advent, what's next? And I know that there are a lot of camps out there on what's next. Um, some would say the rapture, followed by some events, and followed by the second coming. Some would say just the second coming, there's no rapture. Actually, uh, for Christmas, one of my gifts was a hot sauce called the rapture. And it is so hot that I wish it was called the second coming. Because it's even better than the rapture. Um, at the second coming, the difference there would be, uh, and we'll explore this a little more later, uh, in, in the churches where they teach that there is a rapture, 
the church is taken away. And then some other events continue, some like uh, Revelation-type events continue on the earth. Um, and then the second coming is later. Um, depending on who you ask, it might be after a seven-year period or something. I don't want to explain the whole system there, um, except to say that the second coming is the better one, uh, because that's when Christ's church gets to be with Christ forever. Um, so after Advent, what's next? Well, we're told in the Hebrews verses that we read that Christ returns for judgment and salvation. And that's kind of a head-scratcher because you're going, wait, I thought, I thought we were already saved. He died on the cross. How's, how are we, how's he coming back for salvation? Well, Paul tells us that we were saved from time eternal, back when, before Abram and God even made that covenant. We were saved. We're still being saved and that the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit is being carried out in our lives, sanctifying us to be more like the image of the Son. And we're also told that we will be saved, meaning all of this covenantal work set in motion has a final culmination in the second coming. And the next question, naturally, I think, is, well, how long? Uh, you know, if you've been counting, we're going on... Uh, 2,000-some years. Um, simply put, no one knows. In Matthew chapter 24, the disciples equated Christ's return to the end of the world. So I guess I could say Christ will return at the end of the world. But then you would still be asking, well, when, when is it? Um, why do we wait? I think that's actually the more important question than how long. For God's timing. Um, and if you, were, if you were following along with the scripture in uh, Genesis chapter 15, Israel had to wait for God's timing as well. Israel had to wait to possess the land. They even had to kind of go from being not slaves to slaves for a while, and then they got to come back. Uh, Israel had to wait to reestablish their kingdom after the exile. And then they had to wait for the advent. And they often didn't realize the blessings of their waiting right when they received it. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're told that uh, God is not slow, according to what we might think is slow. That this is not a long time for God. So we wait for the same reason that Israel waited at church as the new fulfillment of Israel we wait for the same reasons Israel waited. We might have to wait just as long. Um, and we'll get into kind of some timeline ideas in a minute. But the point is, it's not a long time for God. God knows what he's doing. He knows why we're here. And we can trust his timing. Anyone who's had to wait a long time might question what exactly we're waiting for. Um, anyone who's... Uh, had to wait for their seat at a restaurant, has had that experience. Man, this better be good. Um, what are we waiting for? Well, for, if you're Abram, you're waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. Your descendants would be like the stars. There's a lot of perspective that happens here. If you are the Christians who received that letter to the Hebrews, you're waiting for a second appearance. If you were the disciples 
who were with Jesus every day, you might have been waiting for Pentecost and then some cataclysmic events to happen at the temple. Louis Burkhoff is a, a well-used resource for me, and he notes that uh, there are five events that we're waiting for, and sometimes it is a matter of perspective. Uh, the calling of the Gentiles, the conversion of Israel, the great apostasy and great tribulation, which are really two events, but he lists as kind of one thing together, the coming revelation of the Antichrist, and then signs and wonders. Is anyone confused yet? Um, what's tough about discussions and teaching on Christ's second coming, whatever happens after the advent, is that there are so many versions, or it feels like there are so many versions out there. And sometimes we, depending on which church you've grown up in or gone to, you're given a very specific version. I know that's what happened for me as a younger believer. I went to a church that taught uh, something called premillennial dispensationalism. And I was given this very clean, orderly, or what seemed orderly, um, outline that also matched a series of fiction books by Tim LaHaye. Um, so the problem with any, any view, and with that view in particular, is that you might be able to point at any of those five events and say, well, some of those have already happened. Um, and we should rejoice in that. We should rejoice that the indicators of Christ's return have, some have come and gone, some are still ongoing. Have any of these happened yet? Are you confused yet? Um, but Burkhoff assures anyone reading his commentary that the second coming won't be a secret. It will be personal it will be physical, it will be visible, it will be sudden, and it will be glorious. Personal in that Christ is returning for his people. Physical in that it's not, it's not something that is uh, notional or, or cognitive only. Visible, no one will be able to deny that it happened. It will be sudden of an eye and glorious because that means his kingdom will be fully upon us. There are some views I'd like to uh, explain, um, and I'll try to be brief. I won't probably do justice to any of these views. But generally, these views of we're, we're kind of turning third base on your outlines if you're still following along. Three or four understandings. And really, you could, once you get into the details, there are so many understandings of these last things, but broadly speaking, we could divide understanding of Christ's second coming and the other events that go with it into uh, what are called premillennial and postmillennial views. Premillennial views typically indicate that there will be some type of return event before a period of time called the millennium and then another one at the end of it. Post-millennial views tend to put everything at the end of the millennium. And the millennium comes from a, a verse in Revelation that uh, literally says a thousand years. Um, but if you've been in Sunday school recently, you know we've been studying the Psalms, which are poetry. 
And um, not every single time we get a number in Scripture is it intended to be something you can necessarily set your watch by. Uh, Some of the times we receive in Scripture are symbolic in nature. Uh, Some of the numbers we receive in Scripture are symbolic in nature. And of course, that's why there's so much disagreement and debate over this topic. But uh, anytime I'm looking at a topic, I like to look back at the early church and get an idea of what did, the, what did the early church think about this? Knowing that views sometimes change as we understand Scripture better, I often like to get an idea of what the early church thought. That doesn't mean they were always right on about everything, um, but it's a good place to start. Many in the early church believed that uh, creation would have a 6,000-year history, which matched the six days of creation, and that the millennium conveniently referred to a seventh 1,000-year period that matched the seventh day, which is rest. Um, and even Hebrews, um, the, the, the passage of Hebrews that we read and the ones around it seemed to indicate that there was, there was a, a, an older age, a newer age, and then an age to come. And the age to come was when the church would be with God, be resting, uh, praising him forever. So uh, I, I, don't, I can't interview anybody from the early church, but we do have uh, their writings. And that was a common, a common view, which would land kind of in the premillennial camp, was this view that 6,000 years of world history, then 1,000 years of kind of kingdom age. Um, but if you look at the calendar, you can see that it's 2023. There were about 4,000 years before... Christ arrived on the scene, and we've since surpassed 2,000 years after that. Uh, along the way, we've realized that we were doing the math wrong, you know, depending on who was keeping the calendars. So, you know, there are a lot of variables, but that's one of the views that kind of takes the time equation and makes it literal time. But I don't know that we can guarantee that it, it works that way. Uh, a, more, a more modern version of this premillennial view became popular in the 19th century and it's the premillennial dispensational view. And this is the one that I grew up with in church. The premillennial dispensational view uh, has multiple covenants, multiple dispensations that are centered on Israel primarily. Um, it's like most of it is Israel in the Old Testament and then a kind of a brief church period. And then somehow it goes back to Israel. Um, and I don't, I don't see a lot of... Uh, the, the passages about Israel um, maintaining some land uh, seem, seem a little bit uh, thin and hard to take literally, although a huge piece of this premillennial dispensational view is that Israel became a nation again in 1948. So the, this view kind of has gained steam throughout the 20th century because, you know, it looks like there is some sort of historical, historical application there. Some criticisms of this view is that it's too literal, um, if you look at the premillennial dispensational timeline, it gets confusing and there's not one overarching covenant. There's a bunch of mini covenants and a bunch of mini dispensations and fulfillments of those covenants. And then instead of having one return of Christ for the church, you get a rapture and then a period of kind of suffering and you know, kind of uh, depends on who you ask, but uh, a bunch of cataclysmic events and then Christ comes back after that. So too literal is one, one criticism. Postponement. 
is another criticism, meaning there are some prophetic Old Testament timelines that to make them fit in a too literal way, you have to sort of add time in and it just doesn't work. If you're going to have a literal view of time, but then you don't stay with that paradigm, that, that, that gets confusing. A third criticism is that there is separation of key events and duplication of key events. That would be a fourth criticism. Um, so with all these covenants and all these fulfillments, you know, depending on who you, who you read, there are multiple returns of Christ. But the, the plain reading of, of Hebrews or any other passage about Christ's second coming, it doesn't seem like there are multiple returns. It seems like there's one return that nobody will be able to deny. A fifth criticism, and I think this one is something we can understand really well, glorified saints will coexist with humans who are still sinful. And I think that uh, goes against the, the nature of how we understand the covenant to work. So those are two kind of premillennial views. There are a couple of postmillennial views, very broadly speaking. The older one, or maybe the more traditional one would be a better way to put it. As the gospel goes forth and the church militant gradually uh, takes, becomes influential and takes, uh, uh, kind of gains power by the spirit in an unprecedented manner, um, people become saved, and so this movement kind of multiplies on itself, leading to um, kind of a final, a final showdown before the second coming. And it's, once again, it's hard to get into details because there are so many. Uh, you could have a sermon series on each of these views if you wanted to. You wouldn't want it to be from me, I can tell you that. Um, so this view kind of, instead of going sort of Israel church back to Israel, this view in my, in my estimation, puts Christ at the center and says, uh, when Christ came at the advent, he came to uh, restore that which was lost, came to save his people, and then everything going forward, everything up to that point pointed to Christ, everything after that point points back to Christ, and the means by which our church in this community grows, the gospel, the spirit, the fruits of the spirit, those are the same thing. Nothing really changes. It just kind of continues on until it ushers in this long-term period of, of God ruling and reigning, uh, perhaps through his church. Now, maybe the thousand years is literal, or maybe it's figurative. Once again, it depends on who you ask. Um, but the point of this is that the, just like conditions had to be right for the advent to happen in the post-millennial view, conditions have to be right for the second coming to happen. The gospel has to go out to the ends of the earth, to the Jews and the Gentiles. So it makes sense to me. A newer variant of this uh, post-millennial view, one that is often criticized, says that, well, it's actually a societal evolution that leads to world betterment. And it's a social gospel, air quotes, a social gospel that goes out. So the conditions of the earth are improving. People get clean water and education. Uh, you know, HVAC in their homes. Um, but when I think of that new view in the post-millennial camp, it just doesn't sound like that's what God was talking about when he told, when he told Abram long ago, your descendants will be like the stars. And when he told us in Hebrews chapter 9, 
Christ offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. I don't think he's talking about, you know, high quality public education for all or any other social uh, dilemma that faces. I think he's talking about our sin. I think he's talking about what was true back in Genesis, what was true when Jesus was on the earth, when he was crucified for our sin, and what will be true going on into whatever shape the second coming takes. There is another variant I'd like to discuss, the, the post it's not really a post-mill variant. It's more, it's called amillennialism. And neither, neither pre- nor post-millennial would want anything to do with amillennialism. But the short version is that the, the thousand-year time frame is figurative uh, and that we are in the millennium now as the church and that Christ returns at the end of this church age. And that's why I kind of, for the sake of this exhortation, put it with the post-millennial camp because it has kind of the same theme that conditions are being made right for Christ's return. Now, you could find anyone who holds any of these views that doesn't apply them well. You might meet a Christian who's a premillennial dispensational, you know, the view I like to pick on. They might be a really great Christian who's very encouraging to be around. And you might meet someone who, you know, has a view that is maybe more in line with uh, the historic reformers or, um, you know, uh, reformed authors today. And they might be able to explain it very well, but... That's no guarantee that there'll be someone that you want to spend your time with. Uh, so keep in mind, having the right view is only as important as your ability to live out that right view. So there are a few views to, to kind of explain the last things, um, and I know that was very brief. Which one is correct, and what does that mean for me as part of the church? Well, the more I study, the more I move toward the post-mill view. But we know that we don't know everything, and we know that God has withheld this for his own reasons, just like Abram had to wait, and Israel had to wait. They wanted God to fulfill the promise now, just as we want Christ to return now. But sometimes we have to wait, and sometimes God is the only one who knows why. So now what? Christians may not agree on eschatology, but we can all agree that we must work for God's kingdom and worship him the way he's told us to. As much as possible, we should use scripture to rule out wrong beliefs, but I don't think we should do that dogmatically. I don't think we should do that in a way that uh, distances believers from one another, uh, although some of these disagreements are really difficult to square up. Um, we emphasize the truths of the creeds, like the Nicene Creed that we spoke today. And we emphasize the truth of plain scripture that talks about Christ's return, while also seeking common ground with other believers. I actually like the, going back to Genesis 15, I like the, the image we get of Abram uh, after he kind of prepares the sacrifice, and he's waiting. He, he even forgot to initiate the covenant. He was waiting. And it said that he chased the birds away. Uh, and when I think of what the church is doing today while we are watching and waiting, we know, we know the sacrifice is complete. We know that the sacrifice is effective. Um, we know that God will fulfill his promise to us to return for us. So whichever view of the second coming and the end times you take, we can be like Abram and we can protect 
what God has called us to protect and believe what God has called us to believe. And that's our way of chasing the birds away, um, you know, honoring what God has told us to honor, regardless of which system of end times uh, and second coming that you endorse. Well, I'd like to bring it back around to where we started. Um, What's your New Year's resolution? Will you even have one? I think for me, um, some of my resolutions, whether I call them that or not, will be things that you heard me pray for in the pastoral prayer, Um, focusing focusing on um, not just knowing what I believe, but but living it out in a way that uh, that honors God, um, putting emphasis on uh, commonality with other Christians and not finding things that we disagree on. There's plenty to disagree on. Uh, I wouldn't say we should be so common that we lose the specifics of what we believe, but I think if you refer back to you know the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, that there are elements that Christians agree on and have agreed on for centuries. If you choose to make a New Year's resolution. I encourage you to look at Jonathan Edwards' statements about what he was resolved to do. Some of them are daunting. Um, And I I know that doesn't mean he kept it perfectly. You know, he was a sinner like the rest of us. But I do want to encourage you to think about what we're watching and waiting for. Instead of focusing on, on how long it will take or maybe being despondent and asking, why do we have to wait? Remember that we're waiting uh, for Christ to return, and we're watching for it. And in the meantime, we're calling the world around us to hear the gospel and to believe. Now, indeed, their lives will get better as they hear the gospel and believe, and, and uh, you know, good things will happen in the world. But sometimes that brings persecution as well. So we, when we share the gospel, we have to be careful about making promises that, that, are, not necessarily, um, that are not necessarily accurate. Sometimes people's lives get temporarily worse after they believe the gospel. Uh, you know, persecution may be invited or their family may not like that. But as you think about your new year and you wonder what you might be resolved to do, uh, I encourage you to be resolved to watch and wait patiently to continue working to further God's kingdom and to find ways to glorify God and share his glory and his truth with the Christians around you. Please join me in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We know that there are sometimes, it seems, more questions than answers, but we ask that you would open our eyes to know the truth, help us to see the areas where you have spoken clearly, and help us to stand on those truths. Help us to find common ground with other believers, uh, even when we disagree on certain items. um, Help us to do that for your glory, not because we know everything or because we have perfect faith, but because we believe in a perfect priest, prophet, and king who has taken our sins upon himself and given us everything in return. Thank you that we are included as co-heirs in your kingdom and help us to approach next year with a kingdom mentality and 
a focus on things that glorify you. Send us now to to worship you and to uh, leave your house encouraged and ready for whatever comes next year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.